This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday show, the cold, cold Wednesday, but going to get colder Thursday and Friday shows. Hi, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, whatever you need to talk about, you just call us. It's 210-340-9585. That's 340 340- 9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And if you are driving in your car, and I understand the streets are wet out there, so be careful. The safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else will be hands-free, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, because it's Wednesday night uh, tonight, I'm going to be teaching the first 15 verses of Genesis chapter 35. We're finally going to finish in this chapter uh, I think about 14 weeks in uh, the the study of Jacob's life, and then we move on. And of course, the next big character study is Joseph, and that is an absolute treasure. So we're moving right along through the book of uh, Genesis uh, tomorrow. Oh, by the way, you can watch that at calvarysa.com, uh, live stream at 7 o'clock. Um, Tomorrow, Paula will be live in studio with me on the day edition of the program. I'm sure she has a lot to say because we missed last week's program. Uh, We're going to be doing a marriage conference in Oklahoma next week. And uh, who knows, maybe she'll have something to talk about uh, regarding that. Okay, let's get to the questions that have been sent in while we await your phone calls. James wants to know, should we sing songs in our church from Hillsong or Bethel? Um, James, I get asked this question probably every two or three months. Um, uh, Hillsong and Bethel are both aberrant churches. Um, they also have some extremely talented musicians and songwriters. Uh, and I don't think that we necessarily have to throw the, the baby out with the bathwater. The way we do it here at our church, James, is that we just look at each song individually. If my worship pastor wants to sing a song uh, and I find some problem in the lyrics of that song, uh, then I would exercise uh, the, the, the control of, of not um, using that song. Um, but, but I don't think that, that we should eliminate all songs that come from the, the musicians or the songwriters from the songs just because they're involved in bad churches. Um, the Spirit of God is working. There are Christians in both of those churches. 
And uh, I, I think each song needs to stand on its own merit or fall on its own merit. And and I can tell you, James, in our history here, I, I'm very hands-off when it comes to the songs that we choose. My worship pastor is the best. I mean, absolutely the best. I love him. I depend on him. His heart and my heart are, are really beating in exactly the same place. And I think I've only asked maybe over the years that two songs not be sang. So um, that's the best I can do. I think it's an individual uh, choice made in churches. If you have an objection to some of the songs, I think the best thing for you to do is to sit down face-to-face with your worship pastor or your um, teaching pastor and um, and tell him what your problems are with it. Go, go very specifically, very respectfully, and then give them a chance to respond to it. Thank you for the question. Manny says, how do you deal with unbelievers who are trying to fix their problems without God but never get better? Oh, Manny, this is a, a problem I have with believers, too, believe it or not. They have God, but they're not using the power that God has placed in them. Uh, this is just a problem. You know, one of the things I usually tell unbelievers is that things are never going to get better. They're only going to get worse. Uh, often they'll look at me and say something, well, that's not very encouraging. But I want them to understand that that's just the way things are apart from God. Every time we try to deal with our own issues, um, we, we usually just get in deeper and deeper and deeper. And so I just tell them I'm direct with them. I'm direct in love. I hope they know that I care about them. But um, honestly, I'll, I'll ask a many to, to check their track record. How's, how's it doing? You know, you're trying to fix your own problems. Are things getting better or are things getting worse? And um, a lot of times you can open up an honest dialogue with them. And that will give you an opportunity to present your case for Jesus Christ to him. But remember, salvation, Manny, is always a work of the Spirit. You know, Manny, when I got saved 30 years ago, uh, I kept trying to fix my problems without God, too. And God just let me get farther and farther and farther down. Paula one time writing in her journal, she said, how low does he have to go, Lord? And apparently the Holy Spirit answered a question because she wrote, Ron has to go lower. I think sometimes this is just you being in this person's life. You're going to be there when they hit rock bottom. And uh, maybe then, Manny, they'll be open to receiving Jesus Christ. But be steady, be consistent, and be there. And when they fall apart, they'll know who has the answers. Here is a direct question. It's from David. He says, Pastor Ron, why do you not teach from the King James Version? Um, David, let me say first, I love the King James Version. Uh, It's the Bible version that I grew up on uh, 30 years ago. A friend presented to me a a, uh, uh, leather, smelled wonderful, large print version of the King James Bible. Uh, and I devoured it. I wore it out, actually. I actually wore it out. And um, to this day, when I, I have a vision problem, when I can't see, um, King James is what comes out because that's what I memorized and that's um, so memorable. Uh, I love the King James Version of the Bible. The reason I don't teach from it, let me approach this from two, two directions, different directions. The first is that 
I think the 1984 version of the NIV is by far the superior translation of the New Testament. Not so much in the Old Testament, but from the New Testament. And we teach two twice, Friday nights and Sundays, uh, from um, from the New Testament teaching. So I just think it's a better translation. Um, but mostly, um, when you're, we don't speak the way they spoke in 1611 when the King James Version or the authorized versions came into being. Um, and you end up explaining, you take a lot of time explaining the language when in fact um, you don't have to do that with the 84 NIV or some of the other newer translations. So while I love the King James, it just takes too much time to explain this means this. When if you just read the the, the NIV, it says exactly what what the Trent manuscript intends to be intends to say. So I, I don't have a bias against the King James at all. I love it as I said, but uh, I I don't think it is the best um, translation nor the most easily communicated translation uh, in, in the works today. I know a lot of people really, really, really think the King James is the Bible. It's a good Bible, but it's certainly not the only Bible. Let's go to line one and talk with Rick uh, from San Antonio. Rick, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, what's up, Pastor Ron? So my question was, if you can help me understand the, um, I guess a little bit more in detail, sanctification and justification mm-hmm. and how we can apply it in our lives today, and uh, I'll listen to you on the uh, on the radio. Thank you, Rick. Uh, two of my favorite subjects, as a matter of fact. Let me start with justification, and then I'll I'll kind of lead into how that works with sanctification. Justification is the event; it's the business transaction that occurs the moment somebody's truly born again. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, uh, "If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone; uh, the new has come." Uh, justification, and this is the way to think about it. I don't like little trite things, but this is a way that, that you can remember it always. Justification renders you positionally before God just as if you'd never sinned. Now, it costs God everything to do that. But the minute, Romans 3.24 says, the moment that you gave your heart to Jesus Christ, your past was wiped away. And positionally, you are perfect before God. Now, that's important to understand before I talk about sanctification, because the truth is, Rick, that after we we, we understand justification intellectually, uh, the truth is we don't feel perfect. And there's an enemy who's always going to be bringing all of those sins, all of the terrible things that you did in your past. Uh, the enemy's always going to bring, be bringing those to mind and heart. And the reason is because he wants to condemn you. And when we understand what justification really is, then we start living up rather than living down or living back. Too often I see Christians, and Rick, this was a problem that I had as a new believer. I had done so many horrible things that uh, I was one of those young Christians. I thought, How could I ever forgive myself? How could God love me? Those kind of things. And one day I was reading through the book of Romans. I'd read it already probably a dozen times. But I was reading through the book of Romans, and when I got to Romans 3.24, it was like Jesus turned on a light. If I had been justified freely of all my sins, then why am I still walking in the condemnation of those sins? 
And I don't know, Rick, I'd read that verse many, many times, but all of a sudden it made sense to me. And that moment truly changed my life because I knew I was completely freed from the past. That happened 2,000 years ago. I remember saying very specifically, Jesus, well, well, that happened 2,000 years ago. And it was like the Holy Spirit said, well, then why are you still dealing with those sins? And boy, that set me free. So that's justification. And from that point forward, I was able to live up to what God said I was. Now, sanctification is different, Rick. While we are positionally perfect, practically, we fall way short of the glory of God and we continue to sin. So sanctification is the process of walking with Jesus every day, being a little more like him every day, and it's the process of becoming more like him. You know, uh, when, when Peter writes to add to your faith, one of the things that he adds, he says, add to your faith goodness. And that's sort of a contact godness. It's like when you're walking with Jesus, um, you become more like him. It's almost like his goodness sort of rubs off on you. That's the process of sanctification, in short. And when when Jesus uh, rubs off on you, you find every day you're a little bit more like him. And that process is going to carry on, Rick, until the very end, until we are with Jesus face to face. John says that at that point, we're going to be like he is. Our sin nature is going to be removed. And we won't have to worry about sanctification any longer. We'll be more and more like Jesus every day until that moment when we're just like him. Now, one of the problems, Rick, and this is why I led off with justification, one of the problems is that because we can't be perfect, a lot of Christians just give up even trying. Paul tells us that we're to aim for perfection. Jesus, the last verse, chapter 5, verse 48 of Matthew's Gospel, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. We should never let the fact that we can't be perfect keep us from trying. And when we fall short, then we can hate the sin that causes us to fall short. It doesn't mean we have to beat ourselves up, but, oh, I did that again, Lord. I don't want to do that anymore. And that's what the process of sanctification is all about. It's a lifelong process. This flesh is never going to die completely. But as we walk with Jesus every day, we learn more and more about the power to set us free from temptation, to set us free from condemnation, to set us free from sins of the flesh. We don't have to sin. We might choose to, but we don't have to sin. And that's those two processes. So that's the main difference between the two, Rick, and they are wonderful. My process of sanctification is is, uh, the delight of my life because it gives me the opportunity to spend more time just hanging out with Jesus. One thing more to say, Rick, um... One of the things I find out about, and and I hope this doesn't sound too difficult, but one of the things I enjoy about the sanctification process is that I find that the more like Jesus I become, the greater, the bigger, the more awesome he becomes. Now, see, I don't sin the way I used to sin when I first got saved. I know a lot more than when I first got saved. But now the fact that I know so much about Jesus, I also realize that the gap between Jesus and Ron in the flesh is infinitely greater than it ever was. 
he's the only one that will never disappoint you because he just keeps getting bigger and bigger and better and better as you go through this process of sanctification. It is a wonderful doctrine that we need to embrace every day. Hope that helps, Rick. Thank you for the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Neil says, uh, Pastor in heaven is timeless, right? Why then does Revelation 8.1 say that there is silence in heaven for half an hour? Um, you know, Neil, uh, this is something that we, we can't possibly comprehend. Um, when we step outside of time and space and enter into timelessness where Jesus, God says, I am the I am. Not the I was or I will be, I am. Everything is in the present there. So when we step into timelessness, um, it's a concept we can't possibly begin to understand. Now, having said that, um, Revelation, you're right. Revelation 8.1 says there is silence in heaven for half an hour. Further, we know that the, the time of the great tribulation on earth, we're going to be in heaven with Jesus, is going to be seven years. So we know that we're going to be at the wedding supper of the Lamb for seven years. Why would we know that if we're not going to be involved in time and space? Uh, I think this is just a way to communicate to the readers of Scripture, John's readers, John's audience. Um, I think it's a way to, to communicate to them how long things are going to be from the perspective of earth. So every time you see timelessness, the perspective is heaven. But when we see time and time limitations... Well, that's something from the perspective of Earth. And again, when John's trying to communicate, the book of Revelation especially is so important. We need to be able to see these things. We're intended to understand these things. And the only way that we can be communicated uh, adequately to those things is that we have the perspective here on Earth. So that's the best I can do. But honestly, Neil, there's a lot of mysteries that we're not given details about and that's one of those things. Good question. I like the curiosity. By the way, Neil, I'm getting ready. I've still probably got five or six weeks worth of studies in Ephesians on Friday night. But as soon as we're done with those studies, we are going to be moving into um, the book of Revelation here at Calvary Chapel on Friday night. Our Friday night studies at 7 o'clock. Jean says, what role does Christian ethics play in the church? Um, boy, this is a broad question, Gene. I'm not exactly sure what you're asking. Uh, Christian ethics are established by the only ethical one, of course, that's the Lord Jesus. Uh, we're giving rules. We're given laws. We, we were told in the Bible what's right or wrong. Uh, and the church needs to abide by those rules. It's simple. You know, if there is a pastor of a church who's doing bad things, um, then, then the church that he serves or should be serving um, needs to um, function uh, governmentally in an ethical way. And it's not in a, well, he's a good teacher kind of way or, well, let's give him a break kind of way. What does the Bible say? And I think the one thing that we need to really understand about Christian ethics is that they are inseparable from the Word of God. I'll also add, Gene, that uh, apart from the Word of God, there is really no ethical standard at all in this world. Now, we all recognize some things are wrong and some things are right. 
But the reality here is that um, our world has turned and is turning these things upside down. Right is called wrong and wrong is called right. And it's because we've left the Bible. Now, I'll hear people say to me, well, well, you know, what we want to do is, is we want to have good morals or we want to be good people. But, but not only can we not be good people or moral people apart from Christ, morals are sort of relative unless you put a standard in there that we all have to play by. And that standard can only be the Word of God. Gene, that is the only thing that matters. And whenever we try to separate behavior from the Word of God, well, then we fail miserably. Just today, as an example, I was reading um, a story that somebody sent me uh, from Australia, a democratic nation, um, a democracy is what I mean, um, has, has made laws criminalizing any rule that would suggest that gays or transgender people need to be changed. Now, that's stunning in and of itself, but here's where it really gets stunning. One of the things that they identified as illegal behavior now is praying for someone, even if that person asks you to do it. In other words, if there is a um, a gay man or a gay woman, if there is a, a transgender um, person standing before you and they come up and say, man, my life is a mess. Would you pray for me? And you tell them, well, you know, you got to get right with God. You, you've got to stop the sin or stop that sin. Um, that has been demonstrably um, made illegal. In Australia, can you imagine? So anytime you divorce ethics from the Word of God, they, you no longer have Christian ethics. So I, I don't know if that answers your question. Um, it's so general, Gene. If there is um, something else that, that you have in mind, um, you can write back and ask me to be a little bit more specific. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from our email inbox from Dewey. Hello, Pastor. There are so many questions to ask and so little time <laughs> to find these answers. I'm with you, Dewey. I think mostly the question I'm inquiring about are more of what your thoughts and beliefs on the matter of the subject are. In the stage of life I'm in, uh, I'm now retired from the Army, I'm looking more into God's will and how my worldview has been shaped from the last 20 years of my own life. My question I like to ask, how does Jesus restore a disobedient disciple back? How do you witness the transforming effects of loving Christ in someone's life? Doing the same question is a little bit vague too, but but the first one is really really simple. Um, Jesus restores a wayward or a disobedient disciple back simply by repentance. In fact, Dewey, tonight's Bible study uh, is going to be a study about personal revival in the life of Jacob. Now, Jacob, his whole life was lived in partial obedience at best, which is disobedience. I think we know that, but. Um, um, John, in his, his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 9, tells us how to do it. How does Jesus restore a disobedient disciple? We tell him, oh, God, I'm sorry. What I did was wrong, and I don't want to do it again, so please forgive me. 
And First John 1, 9 says, If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to purify you from all unrighteousness. Now, the reason that's important is because that means there's no room for any more guilt. And so what you need to do is look at the last 20 years of your life and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for being stubborn. I'm sorry for being disobedient. I don't want to spend the next 20 years of my life that way. So wash me. Then do we, all you need is the faith to believe that he's done what he said he would do. Now, the enemy is going to be there to pound you. He's going to try to make you feel condemned. But that's when we have to have the faith to believe. What Romans 8, 1 says, there is now no condemnation for those who, in, who are in Christ Jesus. And so you've got to separate what you know from what you feel. The enemy is relentless. He's going to keep pushing the same buttons he's been pushing for these last 20 years. He's going to try to convince you that because of all the mistakes you've made, the sins that you've committed, God is not going to, going to have any time for you. He's not going to forgive you. But, but here's the, the decision that has to be made. Do you believe what is written in his word? Really believe it? Or do you believe the lies of the enemy? Now, I know the, 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 the answer as it relates to you, Dewey, is, is pretty straightforward. You're a believer in Jesus Christ, but don't let the enemy drag you back into the past. And then I can answer your second question by saying if you'll do that and walk in the freedom of being forgiven, everyone will see the transforming, transforming effects of Jesus in your life. And your witness will be powerful. Thank you, Dewey. I appreciate the question. We've got 30 minutes left in the Wednesday show, 340-9585. This is the word to stand on for life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the word to stand on for life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here is an anonymous question that just came in to the studio regarding your sermon in 1 Corinthians this past Sunday, in God's position on homosexuality, I totally agree with what you taught. You made an incredible point of how we as Christians view that particular sin in comparison to other sins listed in the same passage. That Christians incorrectly raise the sin of homosexuality to a more horrible or heinous sin than other sins in that same list. Your point is that every sin listed is as grave as the other. As I agree with you, and the Lord in this, I wanted to understand your points to why Christians would have such a view. Two points. You did not mention this in your sermon. Do you believe that homosexuality is inherently or that they were born that way? Secondly, I believe that culture and biblical scripture may point um, out why Christians elevate it to a higher degree of sin. Our culture up to about the 70s really looked down on homosexuality. Also, the thoughts 
of two people attracted in that manner really makes me ill. I believe that Scripture points to that reaction. Romans one twenty five begins, uh, Paul calls homosexuality unnatural. That may be the motivation as to why there's more of a strong reaction. Obviously, this is my opinion. I would love to hear your comment. Anonymous, thank you for that. A couple of things before I answer your questions or deal with those issues. Let me say this. Um, I think we Christians, especially in the West, have gotten very comfortable of looking at the, the, the speck in somebody else's eye and, and failing to recognize this big beam in our eye. And obviously I'm using Jesus' words. Um, it's easy to look out. It's painful sometimes to look in. And as long as there's sort of the boogeyman out there, you know, people whose sin is worse than ours, then we're, we feel justified in looking out rather than looking in. And uh, and I think that's a powerful work uh, that the enemy does in, in our lives. So um, I think that's the primary reason. I'm not guilty of that sin. You know, I know, and I mentioned this in Sunday's message, I've had Christian parents, when their sons or daughters were caught in sexual immorality, say to me, well, at least they're not gay. And those are people that just don't get it at all. That is such an ungodly view of sin. I mean, it's like, well, okay, it's okay because that sin's not as bad as others. All sin, sexual immorality, and it is the worst of all sins. Sexual immorality, Paul is going to say in the study that I'm going to be doing this Sunday, he's going to say all other sins a man commits are committed outside of his body, but when we sin sexually, we're sinning against the Holy Spirit uh, who lives in us. And I believe, Anonymous, that that means that that when we sin sexually, we're, we're opening ourselves up to let Satan absolutely destroy us. And I don't know about you, I don't want to give him any help at all. So I think that's why we have that view. Now, were they born that way? We live in a fallen world, and we're born with a sin nature. Now, somebody, somebody's earliest memories may be that they were attracted to um, the same gender. Uh, but that doesn't mean they were born that way. But, but the world makes us that way. And especially in the culture that we live in right now, um, God doesn't make somebody that way. Um, the world that we live in makes people that way. And then now tells them that it's okay and in fact encourages it. And, you know, we're born with a rebellious spirit and, and that's just one of the ways that we can rebel. Now we can find comfort in our sin from so many people. In fact, if if a young man or a young woman, let's say they're having some trouble being accepted, um, they're in trouble at school or their parents aren't quite um, as loving toward them as they, they ought to be, uh, the whole world will love on them if they say, well, you know, I'm gay, I'm coming out, or I'm, I'm a, 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 a female trapped in a, in a male's body. And the world will say, oh, that's so courageous, and, and we actually encourage them in the sin. So that's, I think, the the thing that we have to understand. Because we live in a fallen world and we have a fallen sin nature, there are people who are genuinely same-sex attracted. And what we've got to tell them is the same thing that we tell heterosexuals who are involved in sexual immorality. If you claim to be a Christian, 
you have to then live a celibate life if you are not or if you are not married and i mean marriage as god defines marriage one man and one woman so that's the idea um i don't know um I, you know when when you see two men or two women um on tv and you see it all the time now or on the streets uh, i i think it can make you uncomfortable but but I think when you say it makes you ill, I, I think that's really running a, a, a very close line to to looking at their sin as worse than anything that you do. So, yes, it's unnatural. The Bible is clear. Um, but the reaction is simple. You know, if we had a pastor who was having sex with a woman that he was not married to, we would probably, if he was a great Bible teacher, we would encourage him to keep going. God will forgive you. God's gifts and calling irrevocable. That same man was caught involved with another man. He'd be run out of the church in no time. That is an unfair standard. All sexual immorality, especially in the role of a pastor, needs to be judged quickly. Thank you very much. I appreciate the question. Let's go to line one. Talk with Al from San Antonio. Al, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Rod. Can you hear me? Hi. I can hear you, Al. Thank you. Hi. I met you with Thomas. Um, I was at your church. I met you a couple weeks ago with Tom. I don't know if you remember me. I'm old, so I don't remember you, but I would recognize you if I saw your face again. Yeah, that's great. That's (laughs) great. It's good talking to you. And uh, I I pray for you. And uh, I was when I pray for you, I I call you uh, Ron Paula. So maybe that's a new (laughs) one. And um, so I just it's a two in one thing. So I've been praying for you a lot. Thank you, Al. That's a nice thing to say. I was wondering if you could uh, pray. I, I have this ongoing heart condition, uh, and uh, so it's just been disabling me. And um, I, I live in, I have a 100-year-old house, and I just saw the weather forecast, and it's going to go down to 18 degrees this weekend, and I don't have heat in my house. Oh, and my uh, that's how that's how I got hurt, I think, last year I was exercising inside my house and then it was so cold and then i got some um injury from the heart and then i had to go in for a procedure so could you pray for me um that uh, i'd be safe when the below zero weather comes and just so i could recover from the heart disease oh al i'll be happy to pray for you i'll be praying for you but let me pray for you very quickly now as well okay Thank you. Jesus, this is hard. I, I really empathize with people with heart issues, having gone through them myself um, in the last three, four years. And so I lift Al to you. Um, dear God, um, help find somebody to come along who can help him. Uh, in a hundred-year-old house with no heat, Lord, we're, we're in a time where uh, things are going to be very uncomfortable for a while. Would you keep him safe, keep his heart strong, keep his eyes focused on you? And Lord, while I'm praying for Al to do this, I also want to think about the homeless in our community who are going to be exposed to the elements and in a dangerous place. Would you wrap your arms around all of them and keep them safe and keep them warm? Lord, I thank you for Al's heart. Bless him, Lord, and help him get this issue with a house with no heat resolved once and for all for your glory, God, please. Amen. And Al, I will keep praying for you. If there's anything that we can do for you, let us know, and we will be happy to help. God bless you, brother. 
Oh, let's go to Jeff calling online, too, from San Antonio. Jeff, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Is this really you, Pastor Ron? It, yeah, it's me. It's really you. Oh, well, good. <laughs> our, I, I, I should be careful here, but I think our technical issues are resolved. Yeah, I know. I, was, I, I had a feeling that was what was going on last week. I mean... And I, I busted out my Stacey Adams. I had them all shined up and ready for Thursday. And I said, wait, I heard this conversation already. This ain't That's right. Well, this ain't real date day. Paula will really be here tomorrow, Jeff. Okay. I'm going to start holding my breath right now. <gasps> okay. <laughs> okay <no. laughs> well, so glad you're getting that, that back together. And it's just good to hear your live, real, real voice. I had a question, Pastor Ron, about... Ash Wednesday, and how should a contemporary Christian really be marking Ash Wednesday? I mean, should, should we be all Catholic and go getting our getting our ashes, Palm Sunday burnt palms put on our forehead? Uh, <laughs> I, I found a couple churches that have ashes to go now, so all you got to do is drive in the parking lot, and they'll come like right to your car and, and just put your ashes on. I mean, that sounds like. Wow, that sounds like a... Y'all doing that at Calvary, right? <laughs> no, we wouldn't be doing that, Jeff. Uh, no, I know. But would you talk yeah. about Ash Wednesday a little bit? And, and, and yeah, maybe I the, will. The silliness about that. And I'll yeah. get off and call Je- you tomorrow. Thank you, Jeff. God bless. I, You know, and Jeff knows me, knows I hate religion. It just, it just drives me absolutely crazy. In fact, this morning... I finished my my personal reading. I finished through the Minor Prophets, and so um, I went straight from Malachi to Matthew. So now I'm I'm reading through the Gospel of Matthew again. And just today, Jeff, I was reading in uh, Matthew chapter six when Jesus was in large part calling out the Pharisees for their outward displays of religiosity. Um, you know, when you fast, wash your face, put some oil on, don't draw attention to how spiritual you think you are for fasting. When you pray, don't stop on the street corners and make a big show of your prayers or, or do vain, repetitious type prayers. Um, but, but just do these things just between you and your Father in heaven. And I think Ash Wednesday is one of those things. I, I understand our proclivity as humans uh, for ritual. I really do. Uh, there are things that we do that make us feel spiritual. But I want you to think about something for a moment. What value is there with an ash on your forehead if your heart's not repentant? An outward display. Read Isaiah chapter 1. You want to know what God thinks about religious observances and these outward showy displays uh, of of so-called contrition or repentance. Uh, if, in fact, your heart is repentant, you don't need an outward demonstration so that others can see. And especially because Ash Wednesday is particularly Catholic, it is also observed uh, in Episcopalian churches, churches, by the way, that have thrown away the Word of God, absolutely thrown them away. How dare they? How dare they give ashes to foreheads when they've thrown away the method for determining what is and what isn't sin? Lutheran churches, some of them are doing it as well. 
Um, it's it's a real sad state that the church is in, and I think Jesus is in heaven saying, "Oy vey. All you need to do is confess your sins. That's just not saying that I'm a sinner. It's doing something about your sins. That's what is meant. It's to agree with God about sin. And when you do that, Jeff, then your sins are forgiven and God will purify you from all unrighteousness and the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you. There's no power communicated of or by the Holy Spirit for getting ashes on your forehead and going through the motions. When we believe that religious rituals replace actually getting right with God, that's part of the problem in Isaiah chapter 1. You know, the people to whom Isaiah was speaking or God speaking to them through Isaiah, they were doing all of the religious things, the festivals, the feasts, the prayers that they continually offered, the sacrifices. And God says, who asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? In other words, there's no value in doing this when you're still doing the bad things. We like to think that there's something that we can do outwardly that doesn't require us to make any changes inwardly. And Jeff, as you know, having listened to me for a long time on this radio program, um, I am all about the inward changes. When the Word of God is spoken, when the Word of God is taught, then it ought to change us from the inside out. There is no change that begins on the outside and works its way in. So... I'm sure there are a few people that got ashes today and really are living what those ashes represent. God bless them, but the ashes aren't necessary. But by and large, if people are doing it because, well, that's what we do on Ash Wednesday. So I hope that makes sense to you, Jeff. Thank you very, very much. And I do promise you, Lord willing, Paula will be here live with me tomorrow morning on the program. 340-9585. 340-9585. Albert asked a question that makes me laugh. He says, how does a pastor stay humble when so many people are looking up to him? Uh, you know, Albert, I'll speak for me, okay? Um, I know me. And now I know God. And I know the difference between us. And it's impossible not to be humbled by that difference. I understand what you're saying. There are pastors who are idolized. Uh, I'm not one of those pastors. I wouldn't permit it if, in fact, anybody would try to do that. Um, I realize that when I am doing what I'm called by God to do, it's not me doing it, but it's the power of God working through me. Um, How could there be any boasting? How could I take credit for anything that I've done. Um, I I think this perspective might indicate, Albert, and again, I don't know you, so please don't take this personal, but it indicate a little bit of an issue in your own heart where you want to do something and you want people to acknowledge that what you're doing is good or godly. Um, And that's the wrong thing. I love when James opens his epistle. He doesn't call himself the Lord's half-brother. James, a servant of Jesus Christ. I love when Peter 
opens his epistles. He doesn't say, I am Peter the Rock. He said, I'm an elder in one case, a fellow servant. In the other case, I'm just like you. So, Albert, we we got a lot of pastors who are full of themselves. uh, And people feed that ego. But when a pastor's ego is easily fed, believe me, that pastor is in a lot of trouble. I know every ugly thing in my heart. I know that apart from the power of Jesus Christ, those things would consume me. I also know that even the desire to serve God, even the desire to be humble comes from Him. So the truth is, what people say really doesn't matter. Can I also add one other thing, Albert? You know, when you're a public person, and especially when you're dealing with the Bible, uh, and, and I would add even more especially when you're as direct as I am in teaching it, the reality is that there are way more people who are angry with you or offended by you than who are looking up to you. That's just the reality. Um, you know, Looking out, you can see the level of interest or disinterest in the crowd. The study that I did this past Sunday here at Calvary Chapel um, in the first service, um, I probably didn't get 20 minutes into the study in the first service when four people walked out, got up out of the chair and walked out because I was talking about the issue of homosexuality from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So it's pretty easy to remain humble when you realize that most people really aren't paying attention to you at all. It also makes you sad, not because you want people to pay attention to you, but it makes you sad because they kind of know what Jesus felt like when he came to his own and his own received him not. So it's just sort of the way it is. And Albert, every everybody in a position of authority, everybody who's a Bible teacher has got to get used to the fact that there are more people not listening than people that really are listening. And that keeps you pretty humble. The other thing, one other thing, I say some pretty dumb things sometimes. You know, when you talk a lot, you're going to misspeak. I do that sometimes. So there's really nothing to be proud of. I'm just grateful that God can use me in any fashion or form at all. Thank you, Albert. I appreciate the question. Danny asked, Pastor Ron, how should Christians interact with politics? Um, Danny, let me suggest only two ways. This this is not, um, you know, as Christians, um, politics should not be our little g-god. And, and sadly, uh, in this country, um, we have politicized the church. Um, churches have um, made unholy alliances with politicians simply because there's general agreement on some of the issues. Um, so what I'm going to say doesn't include that. Those things need to be condemned, rightfully so. But here's how Christians, individual believers, should interact with politics. We should first vote um, it's our responsibility. doesn't mean that it's a sin not to vote, but um, really we have a right to, 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 to reflect Jesus Christ uh, through the votes that, that we cast. And I think if we don't vote, then we forfeit any right to complain about things for sure. Um, the second way, I said two things, I'm going to add, add a third here. I'll, I'll do this one first. 
Um, we need to pray for all of our elected officials, even maybe especially those that we disagree with. If you don't vote, you've forfeited your right to complain. If you don't pray for the people that you disagree with, you forfeit your right to complain about them. That's very important. And third, Denny, I think more Christians ought to run for office. I really do. At the local level, the the state level, the government level, I think more Christians ought to run for office. Now, when I say that, the Christians that are running for office, they need never to be compromised. They need to, to if they believe Jesus is calling them into that uh, arena, well, then they need to stand for him in that arena and take what comes. I think too often Christians start out, well, I'm going to change things, I'm going to be good, but then uh, they get campaign advisors that that immediately force them to start compromising if they have any chance of winning. I think we need to see the Spirit of God move through Christians, and, and, and He will do that. I promise you He'll do that if, in fact, we who are believers will stand for Him and for His glory. And we won't be changed by the conversation in Washington or even at the local level. The microphone's thrust in our face. We've got a chance to make a speech. We'll say, uh, I'm a believer. I love Jesus Christ. Jesus says, this is wrong, and I believe it, and that's how I'll vote. And I think if we get some Christians who run for office like that, I think we'd see the power of God move in some of those people's lives. So, Danny, that's the only way that I know. The one thing that I wouldn't... um, suggests at all is that we lose hope because the party that we voted for is not in office or we look at the world and complain it's all falling apart, falling to pieces. I think what we do is we remember that our weapons are not worldly weapons. They're carnal weapons, Paul says, but spiritual weapons And we embrace that, and then by faith we understand not only is that our responsibility, but that's enough. That's enough. I think I got time for one more question. Here's one from Amber. She says, How should we, how should we, are healed by his, okay, how should we are healed by his stripes be interpreted? Are we promised healing from sickness? Amber, I got one minute on this question. Uh, We are not promised healing in the atonement of Jesus Christ. Uh, The sickness that we are promised to be healed of is the promise of sin. It has nothing whatsoever to do with physical healing. I know it's how it's badly taught. I know there's a whole bunch of Christians who just hope that's the case. But it absolutely is not true that by his stripes we have any promise or any guarantee at all of physical healing. So that's just the way it is, Amber. I hope that makes sense to you. Hey, thanks for tuning in. As our friend Al who called, would you please keep everybody in prayer? Uh, It is going to be really, really cold and there's a lot of people suffering. Please, please, please be on your knees and intercede on their behalf. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Paula live in studio with me tomorrow on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. 
The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. 